you're forcing me to start early. <clears throat> okay, well, it's good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful uh, to be able to come uh, here and study your word together, Lord. Uh, we have so much to praise you for. Uh, we thank you for the rain that you gave us last night. And uh, we just uh, we pray for uh, your oversight and care of uh, Anita and Gordon, Lord, as she's gone back into the hospital, Lord, with medical issues. Pray that you be with them, comfort them. And uh, pray that you be with this lesson, Lord. Let the Holy Spirit lead. Um, I know that I'm the least qualified to stand here, Lord, but I know that you, you like to use the weak vessel, Lord, to accomplish your ways. And we praise your name. I pray that... Uh, we would uh, come to know you uh, better, Lord, that we would see you more clearly and more deeply as we go through this study, Lord, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are still up, and the, uh, <laughs> uh, we're studying the uh, eighth psalm, and it is a, uh, it's a messianic psalm. Uh, it is a psalm of creation, and I think most importantly, it is a psalm of exaltation of our great God. Let me just read it once again. I don't think we can read it enough. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, we're back, and I think, you know, we're going to be here probably a little while. Uh, the plan uh, for the study of this psalm is to come at it uh, in, from three directions, or in th with three approaches. The first we did last week, which was basically a superficial assessment, just a cursory reading and an overview, and we saw... Um, the emphasis of God's majesty, His majestic name. We see it's associated with creation. We see His glory, and it is lifted up even higher than the heavens. And uh, we see children giving praise, and that He's ordained such, and that accomplishes His will. Um, we see uh, that He has man over here, and, and for some reason, He thinks about us. For some reason, He cares about us, and we don't really understand why. We've been created lower than heavenly beings, it says, or lower than angels, and yet, and yet He's been crowned with glory and honor and given rulership, and He tells us over what, and then it ends in praise. So it's kind of a, you know, just an exaltation of who He is and kind of who we are, and we know that there's a lot of deep meaning in here because we, we know that it's a messianic psalm. It's, it's quoted 
by Christ, and it's quoted uh, specifically in the New Testament. So that was the first uh, step, uh, the first approach. The second approach I wanted us to do was a kind of a slower, more observant walkthrough of the psalm. And at this, at this time, we're in it right now. I want us to focus on words and phrases and ideas uh, that are in the psalm, just to kind of pull them out and see specifically where the psalmist is trying to point us, the psalmist being David and the psalmist being the Holy Spirit. So that's where we are right now. When we get through that section, I want us to really go in deep, to dive deeper. And I think that we'll find that there are some great themes and principles of the Bible that are reflected in this psalm, taken in uh, conjunction and togetherness with the rest of the Scripture. So this is, this is where we are. Now, yes, we had difficulties last night, and uh, hopefully we're moving along. We, we, well, we stopped for just a minute and focused on anthropomorphisms because it, spe it speaks, the creation is spoken of the, uh, the physical universe. We have the heavens, the work of the fingers. We have the hands, the works of the earth. And we're told specifically about living uh, uh, creatures, uh, zoology. And, uh, and we took that comparison of creation and laid it up against redemption because God also uses an anthropomorphism uh, when speaking of redemption. And uh, where he had used, where creation is his handiwork, he, he labels redemption, salvation, as using his, his arm, his holy arm, the whole arm. And so that's, that to me it kind of says, wow, this, this must be even greater than creation in the way he views it. This is about where we were then. Uh, I wanted to go back then to the works of his fingers, the works of his hands. And we're going to look at the specific works separately, but first I want to explore something else, okay? So we're talking about God's hands and his fingers. And so a question occurs to me, and we touched on this last week. Does God have fingerprints? And I believe that he does. I think that he leaves his prints all over creation and all around us so that the evidence of him having been here is undeniable. Those fingerprints, I believe, are the design and the complexity which are present in so much of what God has made. Let me give a little background here. And I probably shouldn't admit this. <laughs> but I'm sort of an online shopping junkie. Uh, I'm the worst of them, man. eBay, Amazon, everybody I should not support, they get my money. Uh, I particularly like, since I've retired, specialty tools and gizmos. And some of the stuff I get is pretty good quality. Some of it, though, is poorly made and rather disappointing. I often look on the box of the product to see where it was manufactured. And what do you suppose I most often find? Does anybody in here get tired of reading Made in China? Ugh. But having said all that, I can't deny that technology can be a very good thing. I pray that it's a very good thing. Uh, there are many smart people out there who are constantly making good products, and they're searching for ways to improve our lives. And many times, these people turn to creation to learn how to do things better. There's an entire branch of science that's developing that's called biomimetics, or biomimicry. And I think it would be better if they called it theomimicry. Uh, what's troubling is these folks... They have no problem giving nature 
the credit, but they seldom point to the true source of their ideas and inspiration, God. So I have a little book at home, and it's called Made in Heaven, Man's Indiscriminate Stealing of God's Amazing Design. It's uh, written by a man named Ray Comfort. He's a great evangelist, little New Zealander, Jewish guy, and, uh, and an aerospace engineer buddy of his named Jeffrey Sito. Now, in the book, there are several fascinating, several impressive ideas and inventions that are based on what God has already done. For instance, scientists have discovered a, a, a spider silk that is uh, ten time, rated ten times stronger than Kevlar. Kevlar, y'all know Kevlar, it's found in tires, it's in brakes, brake shoes. They put it in protective clothing. Motorcyclists wear Kevlar apparel. And uh, they're uh, researching ways to use this spider silk to make bulletproof body armor, bulletproof. Another, Africa, not a rich country. And energy is a very expensive commodity. Well, they do like the luxuries of the Western world too, and they want shopping centers and things. And they've come up with a way uh, to have air conditioner-free shopping centers in Zimbabwe. And the way they've done this is to copy the design, the architecture that they found in uh, termite mounds in Africa, these large termite mounds. And they have these uh, intricate uh, air circulation pathways that run, th run through them. They use a lot of Venturi effect, and, it's, and it pulls air through. And, cool, and with the assistance of fan, they're able to have these shopping malls open in a very you know, hot location. Another example I'm talking about is Speedo. Uh, they were designing the fastest swimsuits. Uh, and guess where they turn? Sharks. By studying uh, the scale design of sharks, they were able uh, to incorporate features that have been shown to improve swimming times in humans. It seems sharks have a combination of scales. They have smooth, smooth scales up near their heads. And then they have these placoid or rough cells that are down further down their body. Those are called dermal denticles, which means skin teeth. Uh, the placoid, the rough cells, are able to generate a vortex, or they, they cause turbulence. And this combination then of a smooth flow, a smooth laminar flow over the, over the uh, uh, upper head uh, scales along with the rough scales, and that turbulence creates for a, a faster passage of a body through water. And so incorporating the design of the shark scales, they re resulted in Speedo's very popular swimsuits called Fast Skins. And if you don't believe me about their popularity, you ought to just watch uh, the next time, uh, look for them next time you're watching Olympic swim team uh, competitions because just about all of them have them. Okay, returning to the psalm. Let's consider the psalmist's desire to understand why God who's the creator of the universe, why would he condescend? Why would he lower himself to even consider people? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Later, we're going to look at the second chapter of Hebrews, and I think God's going to give us an answer then. But we're not there yet. So let me just throw this out. The first part of the question, what is man? It may refer to man in the corporate sense, mankind, men, women. Whereas the second part of the question uses the term son of man, which is why I chose this translation. Some will say human being, because that's what it means, uh, human being. In the simplest terms, it, it refers or emphasizes the, the humanity of an individual. 
<clears throat> but I think that we also see uh, attached to that phrase is uh, the uh, definite article, the, the Son of Man, it says. You may not all say that, but that's why I chose this translation. Uh, and to me, it would seem to indicate the first man, or Adam, in the context of when this psalm was written. So let's talk about the phrase, Son of Man. As I said, it's, it just means a human being. And in the Old Testament, we, see the, we can see the term attached to Ezekiel, and we can see it attached to Daniel. One time in Daniel, chapter 8, Gabriel calls him, O Son of Man, uh, but without the definite article. Okay? Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. 88 times in the New Testament, mostly by himself, and in the Gospels. Consider what Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. The term itself, Son of Man, harkens back to the prophetic book of Daniel. We just looked at this last Thursday night when we were studying. Uh, there it says, uh, One like a Son of Man is prophesied, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. This one, he would be the future coming king whose rule and his kingdom will have no end. The king was understood then by the Jews to be the Messiah, and Jesus unequivocally claimed the title. But originally then, in this context, Son of Man here in Psalm 8 appears to be referring, referring either to some generic person, man or woman, or more likely Adam. However, as we shall see, the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm is in Jesus Christ. And the Son of Man points to Him. Remember, this is a Messianic psalm. Next, the psalmist states that, that man, humanity, has been made, my version says a little lower, than the heavenly being. Some, some translations will say angels, which may be more accurate, and some may even say God. This phrase is one of those that I usually glance over without giving it enough consideration, and that's most likely because I'm at a loss to really understand it. In looking at the phrase, J. Vernon McGee lightheartedly said that the angels are apparently God's measuring rod. Christ is above it, and we are below it. Even though we find Christ in the Old Testament uh, referred to as the, the angel of the Lord on occasion. Anyway, I want us now to stop here for a minute and focus on this term. I kind of like it to be just an open forum to, to get your ideas and some input on what we're talking about. It's really a complex uh, statement, and I, I feel it's hard to understand. Uh, I have some scriptures that uh, will give us some more explanation about angels, and I have some bullet points, but I'd like us just to talk about what does this mean, a little lower, to be made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, let me just throw out a couple of things. The word for heavenly beings in the Hebrew is Elohim. So you can see why some translations would call it God. This is, this is that plural masculine noun, God in his creative capacity. Uh, but when it, was, when it was translated into the Greek in the Septuagint, they used the word, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, angelos or angelos, angelos, which is indeed angel or messenger. So what do you think? What do, you, what do you think about this term, a little lower than the angels? What does that mean? In what ways? To whom does it apply? 
as humans that we're lower than angels. The, uh, what about the way, what about the adverb little, a little lower than the angels? Why, why did God insert little? Why couldn't he just say lower than the angels? Uh-huh. It's interesting because angels were were very just completely different than angels. And so I will explain what you mean there. Well, angels are 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 a totally different you know, they were created by God. Right. And they it seems that they again when when Satan fell, they all made a choice one way or the other and they made their one choice. Right. So they made their choice and now they serve the Lord. Talked about things that are strange. You know, angels have a don't understand what they're looking at. Right. But but it's because we have this grace that they don't understand. Okay. So you know where we fit. We're both created by God. Okay. We're both clearly below him, but okay. Above the humanity. You have something, Karen. Okay. Okay, that's important. You part of because you know I'm going little. Is it? Does it mean? Is this a degree? Are we just a little bit lower than the angels? But she's brought up the time component of it. Does it refer to a temporary state? Are we always going to be lower than the angels? Or you know, I don't know. Okay, the high esteem in which we were created. We've marred some things. Yes. Well, I had a thought. Um, to whom it, it applies then, does it apply to all men? Or is it, was it just Adam? Is it all men? Does it apply to Christ? Right. Don't say too much. We're going to be there in just a sec. Yes, that's, that's the, the, that leads right into where we're going. That's good. You're ahead of me. Dan. Yes, I read 
That's what, so Dan has, has hit on the fact that this position, it is an inferior position, as he sees it, for a, for a temporary, for a, it's a temporal thing. Let me, let me say this, and you were talking about the angels and us uh, and our, in relation to God. Now, we trust God by faith. I mean, do we, do we see Him? Can we go grab Him and touch Him? The angels have been in a direct relationship, Lord, uh, with Him. And, uh, and yet, some could fall away in that very special position. I don't see re angels being redeemed in God's plan and His book. So, um, so some of the ways we are less than the angels, uh, and I put down just some bullet points. How about greatness or abilities? How about order or sequence of creation? We saw in Job chapter 38 that we, we were created after the angels because they sang at the creation of the world. How about, you know, we always see this hierarchy or rank. Ephesians uh, will throw that in about this, this ranking system that even angels have. Uh, and what about deity? Because we're going to see this, this relates to Christ. But how did that affect his deity? Uh, maybe size. Sometimes, you know, when people see angels, they're, they're just blown away, you know, in the Old Testament. And size figures into that too. And their location. How about the realm? where they live, where they move, where we live and move. But this is the one I really want to touch on. What about substance? And I'm talking about flesh. How does our flesh figure into this? What about our flesh? Is it good? It's fallen. Isaiah 46 through 8. Let me just read that. A voice calls out, then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What about flesh? What's attached to our flesh? Sin? And what is the wages of that? Death. There's this, there's this connection of death with flesh, our flesh. And so, you know, you have to ask, what, and then death can be broken out, spiritual, physical. What are we talking about? Well, we know that the wages of sin is death, and that is for sure physical, for all die. Um, is it a, what about death? Is it, is it necessary? Is it appointed? Is it voluntary? How about Christ? When he was made a little lower than the angels, he took upon himself sinless flesh. Did he have to die? He did. Stella, you say he did. He did for our sins. Or we, we would have no hope had he not. But he chose to. He gave up the ghost on the cross. It released his spirit. He died a physical death. You know, uh, Paul says in Philippians 3.3, 3, 
Uh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. You know, it hold, right now it holds us down to some extent, you know. We need, we need life to avoid the death. Anyway, anybody have anything else to add on that? Okay. Yes. Eight, two. Right. But God, to me, this seems like he's just talking to those Jewish men and kind of waiting um, even to nine to... Right, exactly. That's exactly where we're going with all of this. So uh, that's the Messianic component. Karen? Right. 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 Yes. Let me, uh, you jog, jogged my uh, thought process a minute. Let me just read you some scriptures regarding angels because I'm no authority on angels. I found six that were interesting. Uh, some, some verses about angels. Number one, they are not esteemed like Christ. Hebrews 1, 5, 4, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. They're to guard God's own, God's believers. Uh, Psalm 91, 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. I think you know, that was thrown at Jesus a time or two in his earthly ministry. How about angels, they're not to be worshipped. Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. They're able to appear as men. We saw that in the Old Testament. Do not, uh, Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, Number five, they're redeemed, excuse me, redeemed believers. This is important. We'll judge angels, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And they are ministering spirits and servants. Back to Hebrews again, 1, 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, so that's maybe more than you want to know about angels, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's important, and we're going to come back to it. Yes, Jeff? Well, I, just, I couldn't find it very quickly, but it seems like there's at least two or three or four different places I know in Revelation John, when, when one of the angels starts to bow down to him, and he said, no, I'm a servant like you. 
Right. Jeff is pointing up again, not to worship. We're all we're created. Presently, we're lower than the angels. You know, all this is by God's design, and it serves His purpose. And we're going to see its fulfillment as we go through the psalm. That's what's so beautiful about the psalm. Right. So you're saying don't have an uh, inferiority complex. Yeah. Or an inferiority complex. <laughs> or, okay. Because we're above, you know, at the point that we're above, it's just God So we go into the next portion of the verse that Rob had already gotten into. It says, you know, we shouldn't have an inferiority complex. The, ne the next thing the psalmist gives are some facts concerning God's plan for humans as originally created. It says he crowned man with glory and honor, and made him ruler over earth's creatures. This seems to be pretty, then, pretty good evidence that God uh, views man as his crowning creation. I will say that. He views him as his crowning creation. I'm hesitant to say the greatest creation I, I, uh, because we fall so short so often. But we, we, there's evidence that we're his crowning creative act. Uh, and when we get to this third section of the study, when we go in for a deeper dive, okay, we're going to touch on how beautifully, wonderfully, and intricately we are made. In fact, regarding uh, being the crowning creation, in Genesis 1, in the creation account text, God's wording, while He's creating everything up to man, He uses phrases like, let there be, let there be this, let there be that. But when He gets to man... The wording changes slightly, and it becomes a little more deliberate and personal, and he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so something happens there, and I think that uh, it, it has to do with how God views us. We should never underestimate the, the magnitude of being created in the image of God, even though we mar it. Uh, I don't think that being in God's likeness, though, necessarily means that we, we resemble Him physically. I, I think rather that it denotes our capacity to be in a relationship with Him and to exercise qualities that He's given, He's made available to us, like reason and intelligence and speech and moral judgment and creativity, rationality and choice. Any other thoughts on that? Yes. So I think it's stupid to want to know both. Yes. At the same time, it's, it's costly. It's costly. But yeah, it's, it's natural because of how we were created in mm -hmm. the image to want to know both. With a free will. Yes. And the, desire, and the ability to choose. And we chose poorly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's yes. I mean, I don't think God was shocked. Okay, I have one other indication of man's honored position as God's 
crowning creation, and it's in Genesis. I just picked out these last verses just to make a, a point. Genesis 1, uh, 24 through 25, uh, that's day six. This is where he has made everything up to man, and look what he says. Uh, then God said, this is Genesis 1, 24 through 26, the, the black portion of the slide. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so, God made the beast of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind and God saw that it was good. And then a short six verses later, he says... God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Obviously, man was created in those six verses. Um, Adam was created. Yes. Okay. Moving on, we're making our way to the last of the verses in this psalm in our second approach through. This is just our observant walkthrough where we're talking about phrases and things. Uh, I want to point out something in particular, and I think it's very interesting that God chose to use a word like everything in this translation. Some of your translations may say all things, but it's, it's, it, it falls under the same uh, meaning. Uh, and this is regarding the works of His hands. It's a word that can have different meaning according to the context. Everything used here is not the totality of creation that we are given <laughs> dominion over. In context, it refers to the biological component on earth, specifically zoological. Everything here is synonymous with the works of his hands and is defined as the following land, air, and sea creatures as they are listed. So that's interesting. Hold that because I'm going to belabor this. Um, so it was helpful, helpful for me to go to Webster's and get a definition. And I just got, you know, the very, the very first part. Uh, just to point out the definition 1A, all that exists, everything is all that exists, would refer to all of creation. And that's not actually what Psalm 8 says. It uses definition 1B, all that relates to the subject, which must be taken in context to determine the meaning. The Psalm's use of, use of everything is defined for us in verse 7, animals of land, air, and sea. And you're probably wondering, what is his point? <laughs> you know, I'm taking the long way around, but I, I just want to say... In this psalm, God specifically chose a word whose meaning can change, okay? And this will be important later, all right? Can you? Okay. All right. Now, we read of God saying, God, uh, we read of God giving man rulership over creatures. The psalmist would have readily understood this to be God's plan for mankind from the beginning uh, in Genesis 1.28. Let me just read it. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Here again we see creatures from three, the three environments of the earth, sea, air, and land, every living creature that moves on the ground. That's rather broad, but it's completely defined uh, when we get to verse 7 of Psalm 8. Flocks, herds, and beasts of the air. It's important to note there were no other human beings at the time of this mandate. Okay. Um, so then we're, what we're reading here, this is a purpose, one of God's purposes for mankind, and that's dominion. What can we say about these animals, these creatures over which God has given humans dominion? 
Does this life over which God made dominion, does it include heavenly beings, specifically angels? It doesn't seem to do that. Does anybody see something else? Um, this is important, okay? And uh, we're going to see this when we take a deeper dive. So I'm, I'm building a case now for what we come to as we, as we delve deeper. I think the psalm is building a case for it. So, all right, we finished the second phase of this, this attempt to come at the psalm from three approaches. And I think we're building a basis upon which to understand things and to, and to see things in this scripture. This, is, this, this psalm is only nine verses. I mean, how can it be deep, right? Well, it's God's word, that's why. <laughs> so uh, we, we did go through the first two, and I've already recapped what we did in the first and the second. We've just gone through these phrases, words, and ideas to try to gain insight into where we're being led in this psalm, okay? But now I do think it's time to take a deeper dive. I think we're ready. And I want us to, as we go through, uh, think about themes in the Bible, great themes, great principles. And I think that this psalm we'll see supports some of those. Okay. So verse by verse. Okay. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, the majesty of God. Is this what we find today? When we turn on the news, when we read the papers, what? Very much, very much, and that's that's where we've gone, man-centered, you know. And you have to come up with some pretty crazy ideas to get yourself into that situation. If you can convince yourself that everything around you happened from nothing and an accident, and you know, from nothing, and turned into what we see, man, you have way more faith than I ever thought about. Uh, we discussed this stance, though, this anti pretty much self-focusing, uh, self, uh, 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 anti-God position. We discussed it when we were in Psalm 2. And, uh, you know, the people, they, were, they wouldn't acknowledge God's greatness. They, would, they wouldn't allow him authority to rule. But honestly, I believe that David, the psalmist, if he were here in present day, he would just be astonished at what he sees, at what he saw as being so evident uh, uh, and clearly demonstrated by God's majestic creation and what he sees in today's world and culture. I mean, today, you know, multitudes, multitudes disregard the very existence of God. But David understood that God's wisdom and his knowledge and his power, they are seen in all areas of creation, the heavens and the earth. How could anybody deny it? Well, I think I, th I would agree. He probably wouldn't be so shocked, but I do think he would wonder how you could not see it. It's clear. I mean, you just read what he writes in the Psalms, other Psalms. I mean, it's just, it's not even negotiable. You know, if, if you're in academics, you, you, get, you get to live in this environment I know there's several in here that do, 
And uh, you wonder, I mean, it's like you actually have to watch what you say uh, because the, we're going to look at a minute in the majority scientific view, uh, narrative, as it were. And, you know, you're, you're swimming upstream. You know, we're among, we're among friends in here, but the enemies are not far off. And so, yeah, we can say things freely in here, but, you know, to the outside, we're a bunch of kooks. So the world, you know, the cosmos, that's the Greek word for that world system. It does not speak of the majesty of God these days. In fact, it seems that God and those who love Him get mostly negative press. The name of God and the precious name of Jesus Christ are more likely to be used as swear words these days than to be lifted in praise. When God makes the news, it's more often associated with the destructive events like wildfires and hurricanes and tornadoes, so-called acts of God. However, when the fledgling new state of Israel in 1948, when they came about, they were able to stave off hordes of surrounding well-armed enemies, and they were backed by the likes of Russia, no less. Did you ever hear any credit given to the God of Israel for all of that, for Israel even being here? You know, I'd say against all odds. Miraculously, God's protective hand has been around Israel, and that's why they're with us today, alive and well. So I think then the psalmist David and the Holy Spirit agree that God has made His existence evident to all, even if this is not what we currently see. Some may avoid this inconvenient truth, but only temporarily. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1. Now, we were here. Someone mentioned this uh, scripture last week, and it's very appropriate. Um, it's a great passage, and it expounds on what is implied in Psalm 8 for us. Let me just read Romans 1, <clears throat> 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, and for God made it evident to them. I chose the NAS because of that last phrase. You know, do you, is there, are there certain scriptures where every time you read them, you just see something new? I have, I have a lot of those, and this is absolutely one of them. Um, consider this very revealing truth about mankind. Paul knew well the condition of a man's heart apart from God. Let me say that this section of Romans chapter 1, it's fascinating to me. I hesitate, I hesitate to call it my favorite because it concerns the judgment of many, many people. This is a sobering matter, and the consequences are serious. Essentially, what is presented in Romans, these verses, chapter uh, 1, verses 18, actually through 20, is kind of like, maybe Stuart can back me up on this, it's like a prosecutorial closing argument. The statement of fact will likely convict multitudes in judgment. And when it picks up in verses 21 to the end of chapter 1, you even hear what sounds kind of like sentencing. And you start to get the phrase, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. Three times he says it. And we see what the result is. We literally see what the result is. Now, let's talk for a minute about the wrath of God. I've got a few minutes. And please note how it is written in this, in this verse. The wrath of God is revealed. Is revealed. Present tense. Actually, in the Greek, I think the, kind of, the uh, meaning is, is being revealed as an ongoing. So this is God's ongoing wrath, or you could say His anger. 
is being revealed. I consider God's wrath in at least three ways. <clears throat> wrath is God's holy anger. It's His displeasure with sin. There is this future specific wrath of God in which He deals with Israel and this God-rejecting world. This is coming. It's a seven-year period of time, and it's going to be. It's known as the tribulation period. Let me just read to you from Revelation chapter six, verses fifteen through seventeen. This is right after the initial seals of this time are broken by Christ, broken open by Christ. It says, "Then the kings of the earth." Oh, I'm stuck. No, I'm playing. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne, the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's one. Two, there's also a pouring out of God's wrath and judgment on all unbelievers. This is what has been termed the great white throne. Uh, Romans, I think Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 are speaking of it. I'll read. But, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. That is how God judges those who reject Jesus, according to the works. The believer's equivalent judgment has already occurred at the cross. Now, both of those events are future. The verses that we're talking about right here in Romans 1 speak of present wrath, remember, is being revealed. And I believe it concerns God's anger with sin in the present. Listen to what is said in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This wrath... This third wrath is, is ever-present. It's God's anger. I think it abides on all who have not trusted Christ as personal Savior. In fact, this, so we're in verse 18. If you go back to verses 16 and 17, right before this, a similar language is used in a kind of a comparative fashion, a contrasting fashion. There it, it concerns imputed righteousness, though, for the believer. Listen, Paul writing verse 16 of Romans 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed, is being revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live with, by faith. And so I think it is that, you know, where we stand with God depends on what we believe about His Son. We either have God's imputed righteousness we have his abiding anger. Then the passage, I'm almost through, the passage continues with convicting truth. No one is going to be able to deny the evidence of creation, or as in this translation also points out, conscience. Consider the strength of Paul's argument to which David would have been in complete agreement. The wording Paul uses here allows for no wiggle room. He says, that which is known about God is evident. Notice, is known, not is knowable. It's known. Uh, there's no excuse, okay? Previously, when I read this passage, I only gathered that it was speaking about creation. But this NAS really kind of nails it for me. The evidence for God is from two sources. 
evident within and evident too from without. The NAS is good here. It spells out exactly how the evidence is available. There's a general revelation that is both within a person and outside of a person in creation. Some translations only say that which is known about God is evident. And I've read that many times, but this really goes to the heart of the matter. I used to think that it only referred to creation, but I can see there's also something else. And I think it's talking about the law written in the human heart. And we will come back in two weeks to find out what that is. Okay. We've run a little bit over. Brian, would you close us in prayer, please?